This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalet. All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future. This week, I have the pleasure to be speaking with Jeff Wald, who is, well, a lot of things. Best-selling author of two books, including The End of Job, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporation. He is the founder of Work Market and several other technologies companies. He's an angel investor, startup advisor, serve on numerous public and private boards of director. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Abrupt Future. I am very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Do you sleep? Do you have the time to do other things than all, everything that I mentioned? It seems like you have a pretty complete and meaningful and he- hectic life. I will say I am you know, often asked that. Look, I have, don't have a family, don't have children, and uh, that's allowed me to, to spend time. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by great teams in, in most things that I, almost everything I've done. Fantastic. Look, I'm curious to hear just a little bit more about your own story, how you got to be interested by on-demand workers. And then maybe you might have your own definition of this segment of the economy. So let's see how you got interested by that. That is actually a great question and a great context because so many people don't really understand what on-demand worker means, right? What is that definition? I actually looked at an investor deck the other day and they said, oh, the freelance economy in the United States is 60 million people. And I just threw it in the garbage. I'm like, no, that's wrong. There are not 60 million freelancers in the United States of America. Mm. There are about 58 million on-demand workers of which 15 million are freelancers. And if you can't get that basic stuff right, if you're building a freelance platform, you don't know the size of your market, I'm not going to spend time on your deck. So it is very important to understand definitions. Now, the on-demand market writ large is huge. The freelance market is big itself, but it's not nearly as big as the temp market. But all that being said, that's not answering your question. Your question is, how did I get in it? I I had started a few companies and my co-founder on a few of those and I were brainstorming. He had been in the uh, on-demand space before. I had been researching it and there was a great study by McKinsey in, I believe, 2008 that said if companies had the systems and processes to engage on-demand labor at scale, the current $1 trillion in spend around the globe would go to 3 to $4 trillion. And anytime you're throwing the word trillion around, you, you're on to a big problem to solve. And that was the genesis of he and I sitting down and spending a year writing a business plan for work market. And, and just for historical context, what was work uh, market? Work market was enterprise soft is, I should say. I may Sorry, not be there anymore, it, but it, it, it does still exist. It is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelancers. It is the by far largest pieces of software in the world to do that. We raised about $60 million in venture from Union Square Ventures, SoftBank, and a few others. And we sold the company in early 2018 to a great organization, ADP, which is the world's largest HR company. And how did you go from uh, work market and this great 
great success story to writing a book on the end of jobs. I think there's a lot to to unpack here, but again, let's go with the the storyline first. I will tell you this: as the person building work market and going and speaking at conferences, and people always asking, "What's the future of on-demand work and on-demand work?" I will tell you, Benoit, I got I get very frustrated with people that make predictions about the on-demand economy, as illustrated by my throwing out of a business plan without understanding facts. I, it bothers me incessantly when people speak in the public square without facts. And I thought, you know what? There seems to be a lot of miscommunication, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation about the on-demand economy. Let me start writing something to bring some clarity. And as I started diving in, I realized, what if I'm going to write about the future, the history, the past, present and future of on-demand work, I should really think about the entire world of work. And so it was an act of frustration that led me to start it, but it did take seven years. And, and there are many hands that, that got involved in that book. Wow. One thing that I got really interested is first when you start talking about the the past industrial revolution, because obviously a lot of technology these days, a lot of digitization, transformation. We're living into a what I think is a special era in terms of how technology impact our life and our work. But what you're saying is that we can draw a lesson from those past industrial revolutions. Yeah, look, I 100% agree with your statement. We are living in a very interesting time, and we should count ourselves lucky for that, not lucky in terms of a pandemic. But the types of changes going on in the world of work don't happen often at this scale. And the thing is that they do happen And they have happened before. And so it would be silly in my mind to make any prediction about how companies, workers, and society are going to come together to deal with the huge increase of productivity that is allowed by these new technologies, robots and AI, and not look at how society grappled and how companies, workers, and society came together to adjust to mechanization, to electrification, to computerization, otherwise known as the three industrial revolutions. So I'm not saying it's going to happen the same way. I'm just saying it would be informative to study how companies, workers, and society have come together before in the face of huge increases in productivity brought by a new technology. And any lesson learned? I think you were talking about the evolution of the social contracts in those industrial transformation. So I would say one of the big lessons learned is history doesn't like a tremendous imbalance of power. And what happens is that companies accumulate so much power in their relationship with workers because of these new technologies. And surprising nobody, companies abuse that power. And so we are already seeing that. You see increases in income inequality, which always happen, increases in social unrest as people that are at the bottom of that pyramid are not seeing increases in real wages, are not seeing increases in standards of living, and they get upset. And then you see the rise of counterbalancing forces, regulation, the social safety net, and the union movement that act as a buffer against too much power going to companies. And so companies get restrained. Now, those can take the form of increased union activity leading to more worker rights within a company, more worker money being uh, taken out of the, the relationship, better working conditions. You can see it as the rise of regulation constraining companies' power. You could see it as things around an increase in the minimum wage, which just shifts more of the economic pie from company owners to workers. And so there are always these counterbalancing forces. And how do you 
you see the current balance of power evolving? Do you see companies, again, abusing of their power? Do you think that, to the contrary, there is a mass effect or global interconnectedness that would actually bring more power to the worker? What's your view? Certainly, companies are not abusing workers the way they used to. You're not seeing Amazon lock its workers in its warehouse to make sure they don't go outside to take a break or things like no, that. No, thank God. <laughs> We have, we have evolved as a society, which is good. But would we be able to look at data and say that real wages have not risen for workers because companies have such pricing power in the market? It really just comes down to supply and demand. Because of increases in productivity, we need fewer workers to perform the same tasks. Therefore, workers' bargaining power decreases. And so I'm not optimistic that there is much that can change that dynamic in the near term, save for regulation, changes in the social safety net to provide a cushion for workers as they maybe lose jobs or aren't being paid and therefore the society has to up their wages, or the union movement. And what I like to point to is there was something in the United States called Fight for 15. Fight for 15 was started by the unions. It was started by the SEIU in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, but it morphed into a grassroots non-union activist-led campaign all around the country to change the minimum wage laws to $15 an hour. And you know what? They've been incredibly successful, and several states in the United States have changed their minimum wage laws to slowly move towards $15 an hour. That is a huge change. It is a, an example of workers bonding together in common cause, but not in traditional union structures, but instead using social media and their common interest to push for regulatory change. That is an amazing example of how workers can get some power back in this relationship. So we could foresee a future with more on-demand workers, but given the right circumstances, they could still be able to improve or at least maintain their conditions. I would argue that on-demand workers are slightly different. There are certainly a lot of arguments to be made that on-demand work will continue to take market share from the traditional full-time employee. But there are a lot of arguments to be made that it hasn't really taken that much market share, which is what the data would tell us, by the way. People have this general idea that over the last 10 years, on-demand labor has grown tremendously. Statistically, it has not. It has grown slightly. It has taken about 3% market share over a 10-year period, so 0.3% a year, which is substantive. It is very big, but it is not in the United States moving to 50% of the labor force, which is what everyone thought was going to happen 10 years ago. On-demand labor is between 25 and 30% of the labor force, and it's grown a little bit over the last 10 years, and I don't anticipate it growing much more into the future. And I think this is a point to be highlighted, right? Because it's easy to get caught by scenarios or even ut utopia showing us everybody being a free agent and, and mm -hmm. being submitted to all of the vagaries of a free market for work. But hearing those numbers, you realize that, okay, there might be a trend, but we're not in a complete change of this these proportion right now. Uh, again, 0.3% a year, yeah, it's probably a lot of people, but it means that overall it's not as big as it is. So, so I think just right there is an important um, reminder of looking uh, at our data before drawing conclusion. And that is exactly why I wrote the book. 
because people are out there making statements. Oh, everyone's going to be an Uber driver. I'm like, what are you basing that statement on? <laughs> what, what is the data you're pointing to? I'm happy to be proved wrong, by the way, if there are other data sets out there, but I feel highly confident that I've studied most of them. And again, look, that is not to say that the past will 100% help us determine the future. It is an indicator. And could things change tomorrow? Of course they could. Of course. And I will tell you this, in the United States, there was a very big moment in the on-demand world, which was the state of California voting for something called Prop 22, which changed the regulatory environment in California for on-demand workers. Because if we had this conversation in the end of October, I would have said, look, the regulatory environment is the biggest impediment to the continued growth of on-demand labor. And there is a case to be made that on-demand labor will shrink over the next 10 years, not grow at all, but shrink. And now because of Prop 22, I would say we'll probably go back to that slow and steady growth. Wow. So that's another important data point when we think about the future of work. I believe Peter Drucker had also this view many years ago that hey, you could outsource everything in a company as long as you keep the senior leadership, which would be the, mm -hmm. the core of the company, everything else in theory could be outsourced. And I think implicitly this mental model play a role in framing how we think about the future. And I think a lot of people tended to, to assume that. So... I, yeah, again, I think it's an important um, reminder to, to highlight. The other point I wanted to ask you also is when you talk about agile corporations, so what do we mean by that and what role do they play in this equation? The agile corporation is the flip side of the on-demand worker. The more mm. a company can variableize, turn into a variable cost, its labor force, the more agile it can be. So the ideal structure, as you point out, for a company is a very small fixed cost center, usually senior executives, a few other people that their functions have to be full time and everybody else done on demand. Meaning if I don't need you, I don't pay you. That's ideal for every company. And yet there are very few completely agile corporations, quite frankly, if any. And most companies have their largest cost labor as predominantly a fixed cost. So while that might be the ideal, it runs into two important impediments. One is business process. Most functions just can't be outsourced. You can't do them with temp labor. You can't do them with freelance labor. The business process itself doesn't lend it. You want that full-time employee because they have customer touch points, they have institutional knowledge, there's huge ramp-up time, they you know, have intellectual property and a host of other things. And then the second thing is regulation. You can say, oh, I want to have everyone be a freelancer, but you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to hear you also when you talk about the rise of robots. So to ask the, the very cheesy catchy, simplistic questions. Are robots coming to take our job? I know it's a simplistic question, right? But it's the one that get all, always attention in the media. So how do you tackle these kind of questions? I tackle that question with a easily, a equally simple answer. No, the robots are not coming to take all of our jobs. And to your point, by the way, and it was very well taken in the media, in this social media, soundbite-driven world, people see, oh, McKinsey published a report saying 50% of all jobs are going to go. Oxford University did a study, 50% of jobs are going to go. And that's what travels around the world. No, that is not what those studies said. Mm. If you actually read those studies, if you actually dive into the research, if you actually speak with those people, which was an author I had to do to research this book, you would see that 10 to 15% of jobs 
will go in the next 20 years. And I do not mean to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. That is a substantial movement in the labor market that impacts communities and families. And it is something to be taken very seriously. But it is not all of our jobs. It is not half of our jobs. It is 10 to 15%. But 10 to 15% of jobs will be created over that period. And so the big challenge, Benoit, is not jobs being lost. It is how do we retrain the workers from the jobs that are lost to the jobs that are growing? Because I will tell you, historically, two things. One, this always happens at the beginning of an industrial revolution. Everyone runs around screaming, oh my God, all the jobs are going to be lost. And historically, it never turns out to be true. We end up with more jobs, a higher standard of living with people working fewer hours. That's all fact. The other thing that we can learn from history is that societies do this retraining thing really poorly. And the more we just sweep this under the rug and don't address this issue of how do we get people from industries, from functions, from geographies where jobs are dying into the places where they are growing, the more we don't address it, the more difficult this transition will be. Because while every industrial revolution did end up with more jobs, higher standard of living, people working fewer hours, the transition from the beginning of that industrial revolution to the end where we get to that better spot is a tough one. And so I am hopeful that we can be more mindful of helping workers during this transition. Because certainly one of the challenge that has been been highlighted in retraining and upskilling is that in theory, yes, we would love to transform the skill profile of those populations that are the most affected. But if you've been working in a plant or in a mine or any other deskless type of job, you're not going to be a coder tomorrow morning. You're not going to be a social media marketer tomorrow morning. So mm -hmm. there's a certain distance between the, the, the kind of capabilities you apply in one case to another. And I'm not sure that as a society or as a species, I, I should say, we really develop a, a point of view on how we do that. Every government throw money for retraining and that's good, but how do you do that? That's the part to me that always scare me a little bit about our ability to really take these programs on and transform the skills of all of these workers. You are, you are completely correct to be concerned about it. I am also concerned. We have not done this. It is not from a lack of people throwing money at it. I would say it's a lack of understanding who owns this problem. Is it the worker's responsibility? Do they own it? Because there's a powerful trend in the world of work around personal responsibility. Is it the education system? that needs to change? Should we be teaching more of these skills, applicable skills training in high schools? Do companies own this? Obviously, some societies, German society, certainly notable, does a very good job of apprenticeships and things of that nature. Is it really on-the-job training? Is it some combination to the government's mandate that companies have to do on-the-job training? Do they mandate that when you're letting workers go, you have to provide training? Is there hope in new technologies that can use VR and gaming techniques to make that retraining more palatable. Because I will offer, and I don't have hard data on this, but the general sense is that a lot of retraining fails because workers don't want to be retrained. They don't want to go back to school. How do you say to somebody at 45, well, you got to go back to school? 
They don't want to do it. It is difficult. It is psychologically not where they want to be, and that is understandable. And so the anecdote is that a lot of this retraining doesn't happen because workers are reluctant to be retrained. If we can find easier and faster and more engaging ways to train them, maybe there is hope on that front. Because our mental model of, of learning is still largely in the early part of your life, you go to school, you get some kind of credentials, then you enter the job market, and then you do some kind of incremental learning or training, but, but that's it. And And I think that the more we can start shifting this linear model to a more ongoing type of uh, development, we could probably converge toward a model where it's the partly the responsibility of the individual to be always on the lookout for you know opportunities to improve. It don't necessarily pack all of your learning in the start of your uh, professional life, but it's also institution, public or private, that have to make it easy. I'm fortunate enough to be in a domain that, that evolve and, and I can see my future quite comfortably so far, knock on wood, in uh, in what I do. But I know that for, for some people, they're going to have to make it 90 degree in, in their life and, and that's going to be a lot more complicated. So anyway, I don't necessarily have more of a solution, but just trying to get deeper into the problem. This is to me the challenge for the next uh, decades to come. It's not a technology problem. It's a human transformation problem. I, I concur. And what I'll say is, to your point, we used to have this model where in the beginning of your career, 18 to 24, you accumulated all the knowledge and skills you basically needed to monetize over a lifetime. That is not the case anymore. There's a phrase out there that some people are like, oh, God, it's so overused. I would argue it's not even beginning to be used enough, which is everyone needs to be a lifelong learner. The average time it takes for a skill to diminish so that you can't really monetize it anymore is now four to six years. You have to constantly be upgrading your skill set, constantly reskilling in order to make sure that you have a monetizable package of skills. And that goes for every worker. That's not an on-demand worker issue. That is an every worker issue. Out of curiosity, are, are there some specific skills or area of knowledge that you personally are thinking of developing or investing more time in? For me personally, um, I'm not sure what skills I really have. Uh, <laughs> but I remember as entrepreneurs, having started four companies, whenever I get together with my, my fellow entrepreneurs, especially when times are tough. And I've look, I've started companies that have been successful, that we've had big exits for. I've had started companies that have failed miserably. Luckily for me, the companies that have failed miserably and basically bankrupted me were the first companies I started, not the last ones. If you're going to fail miserably and, and lose all your money, have that be the first startup you do. And so commiserating with people, we'd always say, how do we even go interview for a job now? I'd walk into the company and be like, hey, do you need me to start your company? Because I know how to do that. They'd be like, well, no, we don't need you to start it. I was like, okay, do you need it to, for me to run it as a cult of personality just around me? Because I know how to do that too. And they'd be like, well, no, we have an entire executive suite of people and policies and procedures. We don't need you to run it. I'm like, huh, okay, well, I'm not really qualified to do anything in between. <laughs> 
And so it's being an entrepreneur is its own skill set. So I will most likely start another company. Yeah. And you know what? It, it, it might be one of the skill of the future. If I look at how many companies who have either formally or informally, whether it's program for entrepreneur innovation, which I think now are fading into more, I would say, grassroots type of innovation within company. I think the attitude, the mindset, the accountability, the sense of organization, of vision that are required to be an entrepreneur are certainly skills that would be valuable in large corporations, but also for on-demand worker. When you think about it, they're basically CEO of their own um, yeah. one-person corporation. A lot of people 10 years ago, if you had said to somebody, you were a freelancer, the general notion was, oh, you're unemployed. That's interesting. Now, when somebody says they're a freelancer, people think to themselves, oh, you're an entrepreneur. Very big psychographic shift in the in the freelance market, which is wonderful. And I call that personally the, the Top Chef effect, right? If you look when Top Chef started all these cooking shows 15 years ago, being a chef was not necessarily glamour unless you're, you might be in a very fancy French economy school. But given the, the exposure that this specific skills got on TV and how it was gamified and made very almost glamorous. I've read that it increased requests for admission in uh, cooking school. Now with COVID, obviously it's a different thing. So I don't think restaurants are doing too well these days, but it just showed the, the power. If you start putting a positive perspective on specific skills, if you start showing them as interesting and relevant, you could draw some more interest to that. And, and maybe this is what's happening with entrepreneurship as well. I, I think the same thing in the last 10 or 15 years, we hear so much about entrepreneurs and startup. And we've seen companies going from the traditional story of starting in a garage and now everybody's using that product from small startup to unicorn. So the entrepreneur mindset is becoming so, so pervasive. And maybe that's going to drive a lot of people to, to adopt this way of uh, working. I hope so, because that increase in mindset is exactly along the lines of what you and I were talking about a couple minutes ago. That's the kind of mind shift that needs to, to flip because entrepreneurs are always trying to reinvent themselves and start something new and looking for holes and opportunities in the market. And so that is a great thing because look, much like companies want to be agile so they can remain flexible and take advantage of opportunities. So people need to be agile and they mm -hmm. need to be able to respond to what's going on in the market, take advantage of an opportunity. And the more agile they are, the more agile society is because history has shown us that creative destruction where companies that get too set in their ways and aren't innovating and aren't responding to customers can get taken down by new companies that think about what the customer really wants and how to address their need and solve a problem they have. That's what allows us to move society forward. So those are great things. And I would even add to add that I would not want a robot or an AI to be the entrepreneur. I'm more than happy to have a, a an artificial system that crunch data or does automated market analysis or any other task. But in the end, I think it's that a human entrepreneurship, which is more than just business. If you think about the history of the world, people who move things for good or bad reason had vision, had drive, knew how to mobilize people. Mm -hmm. What we call entrepreneurship really is a modern form or a big form of, of leadership. And this is something that's so profoundly human that I, if we have to give 
things to AI and robots. Let's give everything else that we don't want to do so that we could be visionary, dreamer, entrepreneurs, and, and leaders. That is the ultimate hope here, that the robots, the AI systems are taking those mundane, repetitive, high-volume tasks away from us. And as humans, we're able to focus more on science and creativity and art and family and leisure and love. Those are the kinds of things that humanity could be able to do with this transition. And those are things that I'm very optimistic we will get to. But again, that transition is going to be difficult. And I know you also give a lot of thought about the, the future of work and you organize this future of work prize. So I, I found that fascinating. Can you explain this uh, this project, what it consists in? Sure. What it started with was laziness because writing a book is really hard. And yeah. I don't like to repeat myself. My publisher was like, oh, just put in a few more examples of companies doing things. I'm like, so put an example. So I'll just basically say the same thing over again. He's like, yeah, that's what business people, business books are. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So I was only uh, 150 pages in and he's like, it's not a book. You need more pages. So I came up with the idea of asking some of the men and women that are actually shaping the future of work, what do they think the world of work looks like in 2040? It's great that I've got my approach, which is to look at history, to look at data, to look at how companies actually engage workers, and to use those to make predictions in the future. That's my approach. It is fully fallible. Some of what I said will be right. Most of what I said will probably be right. Some will be wrong in ways that I couldn't possibly anticipate. But if I got 20 other people to give me their views on the future of work, I think that would make it much more interesting, much more fun, and it would <clears throat> allow me to finish the book and produce a 250-page book because I'd have all these great thoughts from all these great people. And they were a wonderful group of people, and they all said yes. So I was super excited. Fantastic. And I think the, somebody will get a prize in the future for whichever prediction turns out to be the most accurate. That is correct. As I was doing this, I have the pleasure of serving as an advisor to the X Prize, their future of work initiatives. And I thought, you know what, I will mimic what they do. So I actually put $10 million up and whichever one of these writers is the most correct, as deemed by a vote of all of them, uh, in 2040 will be awarded the prize. Wow. If only we had a way of fast forwarding and seeing right now which one would you, I think, would, would love to, <laughs> to have a preview. But I guess we We're going to have to wait another 20 years. We are going to have to wait. And I've got my I've got my favorites. But since they're all good friends of mine that did this writing, I won't say which ones I actually think are more accurate than others. <laughs> and maybe for a final touch, Jeff, and, and again, thank you so much for sharing your view and your research. Any advice you would give to business leaders right now? Because we're not just in the middle of a digital transformation, revolution, AI robotics, but on top of that, we have a very different environment with a global pandemics and our whole world has been changed to some degree in the last year. So when you look at the future of work and you look at the impact of of COVID, what do you think should be the priorities for business leaders as we are rebuilding or revisioning our near future? There, there are a few things that come to mind. One is to take advantage of the remote work construct, not to allow people to work in other cities and move far away, but to allow them to have more flexible work arrangements, only in the office two days a week, only in the office maybe in the mornings. The idea that you need to be in your office nine to five, five days a week is laughable. 
at this point. And any company that's still clinging to that, the pandemic hopefully has put paid to the fact that was a ridiculous notion and they've started to change. But by engaging flexible work arrangements, you can engage an entirely new pool of labor that you might not have engaged before. And I think that's a great thing. The other thing when companies ask me, what should we do now, is I I tell them to systematize. A lot of engagement that people have with their workers is not recorded. And it's not recorded in two ways. One, it's not recorded their work with on-demand workers, mostly freelancers. On-demand, the temp portion, they're captured within some systems sometimes. But most work with freelancers is done on spreadsheets still. You don't actually know who's doing work for your organization. And so unless you systematize everything, you can't link and get a sense of everybody that does work for your organization. Who are they? Where are they? What's their availability? And what are their skills? And that goes to our second thing, which is, do you know what the skills are of the people in your organization? Most companies do not. I know of all the freelancers on work market, we have huge amounts of data about what their skills actually are, what they're good at, what they're not good at, what type of environments they work well in, and all of those other things, because we've got billions of data points on that. Most companies know about their workers what their annual review says, which is meaningless, and uh, their biographic information. They don't know and they haven't systematized their skills. So how do you prepare your organization as skills evolve, as the landscape evolves and requires different skills if you don't know what skills you have across all labor assets, everybody that does work for you. And if you don't know, that's how you get started. Well, that's a beautiful way to to end that uh, conversation. Where can we learn a little bit more about your work, your ideas, your projects? There is, there's always Twitter at Jeffrey Wald. It's the only place where I don't go by Jeff because I couldn't get at Jeff Wald. I, I missed it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and LinkedIn is the only other place that I actually spend time. And so anyone can always reach out on LinkedIn. And then the book is, it's available on Amazon, surprising nobody. We were lucky enough to hit number one in all of Amazon's HR categories when the book first came out. And I would love to say that the book is available wherever fine books are sold, but unfortunately bookstores in addition to having their own issues in the evolution of technology, are having tremendous issues in regards to the pandemic. So unfortunately, um, it is really just available online at barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and and wherever fine books are sold online. Brilliant. Jeff, thank you. It was a great uh, conversation on Entrepreneur, the the future, and, and your own journey as well. So on behalf of everyone who is listening, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. This was Abrupt Future. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardy Valley and I thank you for your time.